We're in this series about Old Testament types. Now remember, a type uh, is a person or an event that happened back in the Old Testament. And because that thing, that real people, that real event that happened, there, there's a significant story all by itself. But then, somewhere in the future, there is an even deeper and more meaningful story that it points to. Some great truth is fulfilled on this side of the cross. Israel's history is full of stories that are constantly being brought up by the New Testament writers. For instance, 1 Corinthians 10, 9, Paul says this, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, the typical first century Jew would read that and right away understand what Paul was referring to here. How many of you here this morning are a typical first century Jew? Me either. And so it probably would do us well, wouldn't it, to go back and read what Paul was talking about. And since he's not the only one that refers to this very same story, I thought to myself, self, this would be a good thing for us to do, to look back at this story today. It's in Numbers chapter 21. If there's a book of the Bible that right away makes people wonder, do I really want to read this? It's probably Numbers because of the title. All right, But Numbers chapter 21 has got this great story tucked into it. It's near the end of Israel's wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. Chapter 21, Miriam has died. Aaron has died. And as Israel travels near the land of Edom, got a map here to show you, as they come around to the land of Edom, look at the green up there near the top, they're going to cross just under the Dead Sea and go on up north. But the Edomites won't let them pass through. No way. They threaten them. And so Israel turns south, look at it, goes all the way down into some very unhappy territory out of the desert again so that they can work their way back up north. From this point, Israel's going to fight for the promised land of Canaan. But there's this hiccup. We're in chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Think about where we're at here in Israel's history. Forty years in the desert, right? All of these people, just about all of them, are next generation. None of them, none of them has seen Egypt for 40 years. What did they mean? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt into the wilderness? Most of these people were born in the wilderness. Think about that. And then look where the problem started. It started first with their attitudes. The people became impatient on the way. That was their choice. You can't always choose your situation, but you can choose the way you react to it. Maybe living in the desert wasn't their choice, but their attitudes were. Because of their sin, 40 years before, God told them, it'll be that long before you're allowed to go into the land of the promise. 
For 40 years, they've been fed manna by God. Everyone 40 years and younger hasn't had any other food in their lives. And then their attitudes showed up in their words. See it? The people spoke against God and Moses. If you ever wonder why people say some of the things that they say, just remember that somewhere behind every critical, negative, cutting remark, there is an attitude. And somewhere behind every positive, affirming, encouraging word is an attitude. Before you write that off as no big deal, let me point out that Israel's sin in this story, the only thing that is mentioned that they did wrong in this story is two things. Their attitude and their words. Nothing else is mentioned. Real quick, I'd like you to take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Words matter. Amen? Whether they're sent out through social media or whispered behind someone's back in a dark hallway or said face to face, words matter. Obviously, they mattered to God. Let's go back to the story in Numbers, chapter 21, verse 6. They did this, and then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God will use what he wants to to get his work done. In this case, it was serpents. Maybe the vipers that still live in uh, Palestine today, their bite was poisonous enough, it says, that many Israelites died. Sometimes it takes tough punishment from God to get us back on track. Ran across the story of a real man named Robert Sayers Sheffy. Sheffy was a fiery Methodist preacher from Virginia. Born in 1820, he became what was known as a circuit rider. And he was well known for being a very eccentric man and also a prayer warrior. And at one point in his life, he was headed out on a trip on his circuit by horseback when somebody came rushing up to him on a horse with some bad news. One of the Stafford family, his in-laws, had been bitten by a snake and needed help. Soon as he got the news that this relative of his had been bitten by a snake, Sheffy jumped down off of his horse, spread out a lambskin rug that he used when he prayed, knelt down, and he began to pray. He thanked God for snakes. Because if a snake hadn't bitten this lady, he said, she wouldn't be turning to God now for help. And then he prayed for God to send a snake to bite several other people in the house that he knew needed to seek the Lord. Well, 
snake bites caused the Israelites to realize their sin. And rather than questioning God for their punishment, they asked what they should do about it. Look at verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So God listened to Israel's pleas for help. There wouldn't need to be any more deaths by snake, but I'd just like to point out a couple of things about the cure here. First of all, this is another situation, if you look at it and think about it, where God's way of getting something done is taking the long road. People were being bitten by snakes and dying. The obvious solution that they asked for is what? Get rid of the snakes. Make the snakes go away. But that's not what God did. Did you notice that? God did not make the snakes go away. He could have made them stop biting. He could have made their bites non-venomous. He could have made them go away. Apparently, though, people are still going to get bitten. That's interesting, isn't it? It just won't be fatal. It reminds me that we often pray for something. We tell God we'd like it to be done a certain way. But God has something better in mind. It's usually a longer, more involved way of doing things that we're going to need to follow. And it reminds me that we would like for all evil, all suffering, all bad things to just go away from life as it is now. But that's not what God is doing. Instead, Paul steps back in Romans 8 and he reminds us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Remember that when you hear about the next mass shooting and you ask God, why? Why don't you stop things like that from happening? God didn't make the snakes go away. But that doesn't mean he wasn't doing anything, does it? He had a way to help his people. It wasn't the way that they asked for, but God was there helping them. I also noticed this. This plan focused on the snakes in a way that people wouldn't have chosen. Moses put a bronze snake up on a pole. Really? Now, a mongoose maybe? A honey badger maybe? You know, something that eats snakes? Snakes are biting you, people are dying, so what do you do? You make a bronze copy of one of them and you put it up to look at when you need help. Now this will make more sense later, I think. A lot of God's ways of doing things are like that. They'll make a lot more sense to us later. As someone else has said, that bronze serpent is a symbol of both the sin of the people and the mercy of God. At the same time, 
In order for someone who was bitten to live, they had to be willing to look square in the face with their own sin. So I noticed that in the way that God has set up here, the people had something to do. True, Moses set up the bronze snake on a pole, but what did the people need to do? Audience participation time. What did the people need to do? Look at it! Look at it! That's a tall order. I mean, Moses did all the work here, or he had all the work done here. The way that God set this all up, though, the people still had to respond to God's offer for help. Anyone bitten would have to believe that there was help available to them. They'd have to make the trip to the snake pole. There was only one, by the way, and they would have to look at it. Look at it in response to God's offer of help. That was it. Too simple? Maybe. So if you had received the fatal snake bite, would you look? Well, of course, if it if it's set up by God, if God sends a solution, it works. That's what it says. If serpent bit anyone, he'd look at the bronze serpent and live. In fact, it works so well, get this. Nearly a thousand years later, the bronze serpent is still around. People have made an idol of it. Second Kings, chapter 18, good King Hezekiah is working reforms in the nation. And one of the things that he does is he breaks the bronze serpent that people are making sacrifices to. They named it Nehushtan. And I'd suggest to you that's why today we don't have Noah's Ark or the Ark of the Covenant or actual pieces of the cross of Jesus or even any of the original writings of the Bible authors in our hands today because we humans have a track record of taking the good things that God gives to us and turning them into idols. I thought of the irony of this coming up today. And by the way, it's not because we're here in the auditorium today that this sermon fell on this day. It's was scheduled some time back and we just figured out that we could get here today. But today we're back in our newly renovated auditorium and God has given us a beautiful, comfortable building. It's air-conditioned. It's not perfect, but it's very nice. And if we really want to show God our appreciation for this place, I think the best way we can do that is by giving it the place in our thinking that it should have. It's true that people hear God's word here. People are saved here. People meet around the Lord's table here. People pray here and worship here and are together here. It's also true that lost people are not in this place. They're mostly outside of this place. How are they going to hear God's word? How are they going to be saved? We spend only a small percentage of our lives each week in this building. It's important for our time with God to be much bigger, much longer than the time that we spend here. Amen? We see each other only a short time. There's got to be some way that we're involved with one another more than just the short time that we're here on a Sunday. Our worship of God can't be limited to here. Our learning from can't be limited 
If it is, then I fear very much that like Israel, we've taken this thing that God has given us to help us and made it to be something that he never meant to be. So let's not go there, brothers and sisters. Now take a breath. All right. This story from Israel's history, while it's got great value all by itself to us, is pointing us to something that's even greater today. Just like the tracks that an animal leaves in the ground can guide you to the animal itself. The imprint of this Old Testament type can point us to the greater reality where it's pointing. God doesn't do anything by chance, does he? This story is no exception. Anytime I'm, I'm reading through a story from Scripture, it's helped consider where I am in the story. i got to tell you, it's a whole lot more fun for me to read a story about Israel and then just take pot shots at them about how they blew it. But it's much more useful to consider if I'm like them, maybe. And if maybe I can learn from them. Remember how Israel had sinned in Numbers 21? What were the two things that were wrong about what they did in Numbers 21? Their attitude and their words. We already visited there. Along with all of the other crises that seem to be plaguing our culture today, those are two, by the way, where God's people can show that we are following a different Lord. And like Israel, I can picture that we'd like for God just to take away all the consequences of our sins. That seems to be the obvious answer, doesn't it? But God is still today having his people take the long road. His ways are different than what we think we need at first. So think this through, especially this morning if you're not following Jesus your life, you get this from Scripture that the payment for that sin is death, and that sounds pretty serious, and you hear that God has a way to fix the problem in life that sin creates, and so you say to God, great, fix it. Sounds simple, right? But what he gives to us is not a quick fix. The cure is as long as the story of human history, and that's not over yet. So I want to take this Old Testament type from Numbers 21 that we've looked at, and I want to see what it's pointing to. Jesus was visiting with a man named Nicodemus who had questions. He was searching. But he needed to come to grips with some of his preceptions about how he thought we're supposed to relate to God. Up to this point in his life, that had never involved Jesus. But after Jesus came, that was all changed. And so Jesus told Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 13, these words. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, when we read about the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, what we are reading is a preview of Jesus lifted up on the cross. Just like the people who looked at the raised serpent were looking 
at their problem, everyone who looked at Jesus was looking at the Just like that serpent was lifted up so that it could be seen, Jesus was lifted up so that he could be seen. You see, Jesus, while being put on the cross, was becoming for us cursed. The people who were watching this on the cross were watching as he who had no sin became sin. The very thing from which you and I, all of them, need to be delivered. And just like the Israelites needed to be delivered from the serpents that were killing them, every one of us needs to be saved from the sin that kills us. That's the long run. And it may not be the way that we would do it, but it's what God is doing for us. Someone else has done the work way. But there's something still for us to do. You have to look. You have to be convinced that you need to look to Jesus. You have to be convinced enough that you'll make the trip Peter said on the day of Pentecost, he was quoting from Joel, all call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't earn it. Someone else does the work of saving you, but you have to accept it. Can you picture someone in Moses' day, someone who had been bitten by one of the serpents, taking that bite and then saying about it, you know, I don't want to look at the serpent. I'm going to see if I can tough this out, if I can make it without doing it. What do you think? Or maybe, well, I'm not going to look at the serpent. I never believed it would work in the first place. I've never watched anybody be healed by it. Or I'd have to walk clear across the block to see the serpent. It's not worth the trip. Or, I'm going to wait. I hear there's another serpent that work. Or, hey, look at the neat teeth marks it makes. I'm going to get some more of those. And if someone else serpent and been saved, heard his friend speaking that way, saying things like, what would he say to his friend? Well, okay. You believe what you want to. Who am I to judge? you look okay to me maybe you'll be fine it'll all work out brothers and sisters we know the cure that the world needs whether they understand that about themselves or not we know that we know the cure that the world needs it's not going to be settled by an election or by a court we need to help people look to Jesus to be saved it's that simple. West Central Philippines, Culeon Island. It's the site of what formerly was the Culeon Reservation, founded in 1906. We would refer to that as a leper colony. It was set aside for the treatment of Hansen's disease. People of the Philippines who had Hansen's disease, leprosy, would be boated off to Culeon Island, sometimes against their will. And over the years, as time passed and treatment for Hansen's disease improved and people could be cured and cleared of it, they could go off of Culeon Island, return home. 
But I learned this about some of those people. Not all of them wanted to. I read an account from a man who visited there. He said that some people, when the medication, they were lined up and the medication was being passed out, some of them would take taking their pills. There were even reports of some who would purposely contaminate their children with the disease. Some of them had lived on island so long, they didn't want to try to return to a normal life again. And to be flow of donations from all over the world, so they would rather keep that life and hold on to their terrible, fatal disease. Does that describe you? Holding on to the terrible disease will cost you eternal life. You don't have to. Jesus was lifted up from the earth. Lifted up so that you and I look to him and be freed from the curse. It's a matter of calling on his name. How do you do that? I'm glad you asked that. When people ask that question, after Peter said you need to call on his name, when people ask the question, he said, Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, any of the Lord will call to himself. Isn't it a wonderful thing today that we can look to Jesus and live? Someone else has done the work. There, there are others that need to hear about that. And so this morning, if you're on the saved side of that, then my job and your job is to help people know that there's a cure, that someone else has done the work and they need to look to Jesus. If you haven't done that yet this morning, we hope you're listening. We hope that you'll look to Jesus and live. I'm going to ask you please stand with me pray together and uh, our worship team's going to come and, and lead us in a song and in just a moment uh, we'll have an opportunity to start making some decisions about what to do what are you going to do about a neighbor about your family member who doesn't understand good news what are you personally to do if you haven't looked to Jesus to live I'll be here in the front after we dismiss today I'll be here while we're singing this last song and that's the perfect time for you to step down and say I want to make that change today we're ready for you to do that let's pray Father we thank you that you have made the cure it's not how we would have done it but we humbly thank you we know that your wisdom is greater than ours that your holiness is the standard of all that is right and good we know that our sin has separated us from you and that you of your Son have made the way that we can be brought near to you again. So Father, in light of this story, the story of your working, and your ongoing work, we stand today. We've got people on our minds, Lord, that need to know Jesus. And I pray that you would uh, impress upon our hearts what it is we need to do. Help us please not to be comfortable that we say nothing. And Lord, there are some listening today who know 
they need to make this decision. They have resisted looking to the one who was raised up for their salvation. So Father, I pray that you'll work on us right now. Help us to make choices that are going to last forever for good. We pray in Jesus' name.